Hey, uh, we've actually just finished a, a sermon series called The School of Prayer. We've actually been looking at the life of Jesus and episodes where he actually prays himself and what we have to learn from that. Now, uh, the Christian calendar around the world, churches around the world, are commemorating this season called Lent. Now, Lent is actually this season over 40 days that leads up to Easter Sunday, the death and resurrection of Jesus, where we remember what Jesus has done. And in many ways, Lent is this time where historically, even if you're not religious here, it begins with Ash Wednesday, which some of you were at our Ash Wednesday gathering, which we're so grateful that you were able to join us for. But Lent is usually the season in which I remove things from my life, whether it be meat or sweets or chocolate or social media. And the reason why I fast from some of these things is so that I might center, I might focus on Jesus, especially in the season of Lent. And so whether you might be someone who's practicing that right now in this season, or you're someone who's just kind of in the season where you're wondering who this Jesus person is, uh, today begins the start of a sermon series about the miracles of Jesus. We're actually going to be centering ourselves around these stories where Jesus performs these extraordinary miracles. Now today we is revealed actually the first miracle that Jesus does. It happens way early on in John chapter 2. And it's, it's really a stunning miracle for a number of reasons. In fact, let's go ahead and look at this passage. Check out what it says. Look at how it starts. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, a wedding was basically in the ancient world. It was a much larger affair than it is today. Not to say that weddings today aren't these extravagant parties, but this wedding was actually usually, probably, um, uh, extended over seven days. These wedding celebrations were significant moments for families to get together, multi-day celebrations. And, and so throwing this party and where hospitality was such a value in this ancient Near Eastern culture, this is a very big moment. And look what it says. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So essentially, Jesus is showing up at this massive party. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Here's the predicament. Oh my goodness, here's the moment. There's this massive party going on. These families are here. Somehow Mary is clued in on this very private matter. And the fact is, the wine is gone. Like, big moment here. Now, here's the thing, right? And I'll just stop right here and I'll just share a little bit. Like, you know, um, here's Jesus. And this is what we believe about Jesus, is that he's this miracle-working God in the flesh. And you would expect, or at least I would, that this is going to be Jesus. Like, Jesus, this is your first miracle. You know, like, this is going to be like, this has got to be a big moment. Uh, recently, there's been different publishers that over the last few years, they've been asking if I'd be willing to write a book and da-da-da-da-da. And like, so I've been talking about it. One of the reasons why I've kept saying no is because there's this whole promotional element to it that's been very uncomfortable for me. So as a result, like, you know, they're talking about this. And and one agent said to me, Drew, you'll never get back your first book launch. Like, wow, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) You know, there's social media followings and you've got to promote this thing and do these, gather a launch team to have this very big, significant thing. And a part of me is just like, I don't know if I want to do that. But I realize in the world that we live in, like whether it's book launches or company launches or uh, this big moment in one's life, these are like, especially the first thing, like if you could imagine if you've been part of a startup or something, when you go public, when you launch something, this is like a big moment. And of course, the way that us as marketers, we work and we think about this is we're like, hey, let's go big or go home. And honestly, if I were Jesus' marketing agent, I'd be like, Jesus, hey, you only got one shot. 
Got one shot here for your first miracle. You gotta show them, you gotta show them who you are, that you are one of one, the goat. Right now, Jesus, let's go, right? I mean, this is what, and I would probably like comb through whatever miracles he was about to, Jesus, you know, raising the dead is pretty extraordinary. Let's go, let's go big, right from the jump. Then people will know who you are. But essentially, the miracle is like, this party has run out of wine. It's like, seriously, Jesus? Like, this is the context? This is the, this is the thing that's going to be your big public entrance? Your first miracle? And I love what it says. I mean, look what it says. The master of the banquet tastes the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. So he doesn't even know. The, ma- the, the event doesn't realize that Jesus is basically saving face for him. This guy has no idea. And look what happens. It had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. Even the bridegroom doesn't know. The bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till now. (laughs) I love this. It's like, really, Jesus, this is the big miracle? This is the big event. Like, you really saved the day by providing wine for this party. And I, I love how at the end, it gets so solemn. Check, check this out. Look what it says. What Jesus did here in Ga- Cain of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. <laughs> don't you love this? Like the weightiness of this. Oh, don't you see this first sign where he turns water into wine? He saves the caterer from this disastrous mistake. This reveals his glory. <laughs> I mean, isn't this stunning? And his disciples believed in him. It's like after this, his disciples are like, you are the true and living God. You brought the best wine to the party. Now, in some ways, like what's so significant about this is you would think, and again, even for me, I look at this, I'm like, Jesus, I would go with Lazarus, honestly, raising Lazarus from the grave as my first one. Uh, But like you've done so many like healing of the blind. We could throw John chapter nine, the healing of the man born blind up here as well. Maybe that. Or you know what? Feeding of the 5,000, that was pretty impressive too. John chapter 6. Like any of these would be more impressive than this moment. But there's something about this moment, about, about the fact that Jesus here, in the most ordinary of events, this is where he's going to reveal his goodness, his grace, his joy, and what he's all about. That God isn't a God just simply of the big, extravagant moments. He's actually a Jesus who's with us in every single detail. Now, what's hard for me about what this passage reveals, though, because this is what Jesus is basically doing. He's basically elevating a party. What's hard for, for me with that is I grew up in a context where joy and happiness was just not part of what it meant to follow God. If anything, my belief about God was that he was someone that was going to take away joy. <laughs> He's the one that I need to sacrifice for. He's the one that, like, solemnly, right, I need to, whenever I, I sing songs in worship, I, I can't have a happy face. I have to have a, like a, like a really earnest faith, face. Um, actually, in my own Korean-American heritage, 
like my parents, they immigrated to the States in the 70s. And a lot of Korean communities, they would start new churches. And one of the reasons why, even if people weren't that religious, the church was the area by which people could speak their native language, they could eat their own food, and no one would bother them. <laughs> and so a lot of these immigrant communities, so we grew up going to church contexts like this. Now, you got to understand, though, like uh, this, the churches that I grew up in, they ended up having very acrimonious church splits and fights. And I grew up myself in a home that was very toxic and abusive. And so a lot of people, they say, oh, you're a Christian or you're a pastor just because you grew up in the church. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, a Christian despite growing up in the church, you know? Like, like it was so painful. But what was so startling about this, the, the churches that I grew up in, now, again, it was these immigrant Korean communities. There's actually this word in Korean culture that I would learn later on, and it's a word called han. And I, I never knew this word existed. I never knew what it was about but when someone started to explain this word to me, I remember going to my mom, and I remember asking her. Again, she had immigrated to the country. Korean is uh, her native language. And I asked her, I said, what is this word, Han? And she says to me, she goes, Han. Han is. Ah! <laughs> you know, that, that's literally what she did. And I didn't, I didn't quite. And uh, apparently, it's like this, this word that's this inexpressible word that actually connotes sorrow and rage and helplessness. And she went on to tell me that this word Han actually describes what many Koreans believe about our heritage, having been a small nation surrounded by a bunch of superpowers around them and constantly exploited. There's just this history of grief and sadness. And even today, in the midst of the conflict between North and South Korea, the separation of families, Han describes the Korean psyche. It's this overwhelming sense of grief and sorrow. And so she's explaining this to me about the heritage that I come from, the family of origin that I've come from. And it suddenly dawned on me, this is what Korean dramas are all about. (laughs) Anyone watched any Korean dramas in the house? I know you have. (laughs) Just didn't raise your hand. They usually end in great tragedy and sorrow, in loss, significant loss. Han, it's just part of the heritage. And so here's what would happen, right? So like you can imagine the, the faith that I grew up in. I remember we'd have these prayer meetings. And at these prayer meetings, they would say like, hey, we're, today we're going to pray because God has delivered us and given us this new building we're going in. So you can imagine this little kid. I'm like, okay, we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a celebratory party and prayer. So here we go, go into this meeting, right? And I'm sitting with my parents. They're like, okay, we're going to pray now. And all of a sudden, the lights go off. I'm like, what's going on right now? The lights go off. Then these cries echo through the room. They cry out in prayer. And all of a sudden, the prayers sound like everyone is wailing, like weeping, weeping, and artists are praying, and people start crying and weeping. Now, you got to imagine, like, there's a whole room full of these Korean families, and here I am as this little kid, like, just basically observing all of this, and here's what I realized. This is what faith is all about. It's about weeping and sorrow, and even in moments of celebration, we weep, we cry out, we wail, even if I don't want to, 
That's what it means for Han. <laughs> and so as a result, that's what I think about God a lot of times. That God, yeah, God, he's a God who brings the serious fire. Doesn't bring joy to the party. He's the one that brings seriousness and intensity and sacrifice. And he says it like that. (laughs) (laughs) And yet here's Jesus' first miracle. And here's what's so revolutionary about Jesus' first miracle. Jesus is not some killjoy. He's actually the one who brings the best wine. He's not someone that's here to ruin everyone's fun. In fact, he elevates the party. This is who Jesus is. And his first miracle is one in which he wants to impart the greatest of joy, of celebration, of happiness. Now, I realize even the phrase about bringing the best wine, it might be triggering for some of us who might be struggling with addiction in the room, so I don't want to minimize that struggle. Uh, And I realize that might be really hard as I even talk about this. And of course, the scriptures have all been about moderation, having Jesus be at the center. And this is what this whole season of Lent is about. And yet, I can't get away from this teaching that Jesus here, this is who he is. He brings the greatest amount of joy and pleasure and happiness. And I realized for me, growing up, I've had this underdeveloped sense of the joy that God brings instead. I understand the God of sorrow and punishment and intensity. Uh, I remember one of the first vacations I went on was a mission trip to Mexico in an orphanage. And I remember going and sleeping in this orphanage, and I was like... So this is what vacations are, huh? Like, uh, yeah. But again, that's just the background that I grew up in. And this is not to say I don't want to minimize mission trips to anywhere. In fact, we celebrate them. We're sending a group later on this summer to Guatemala. Um, But there's just this way that my faith has been so tinged by this overwhelming sense that it's all about sorrow and grief. And yet here Jesus is, who's not some killjoy. He's actually here to bring the best wine This is who he is. See, this theme is actually replete throughout Scripture. Check this out. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. It says, taste and see. Don't you love this reference to the senses? That the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. See, but it's not only in the Psalms. Check this out. Isaiah chapter 55. Look at all the images of delight, of joy. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Without money and without cost, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. (laughs) Don't you love this? And you will delight in the richest affair. This is who God is. This is his, his overture, his invitation to his people to experience the fullness of delight and joy. And this is what Jesus does. Uh, to illustrate this further, I thought what we could do at this moment, uh, I'm going to ask uh, the ushers to come forward, and uh, we're actually going to pass out a practice of joy, a kiss from God that I want to offer to you all this morning. Now, here's what I'd like for you to do. 
before you dig right in, I would love for you just to hold the Hershey kiss in your hand. Each person, just hold it in your hand. If you get a Hershey kiss, everyone's going to get one here. You can take one and pass it around. Now, here's what I realize. Some of you are like, I gave up sweets for Lent. I realize that. I recognize that. I affirm that. As a minister of the gospel, I absolve you from any guilt or shame. This is an invitation to connect with the holy God in this season of Lent to center your life around the good gifts that God gives to us. So, Bianca, can I get one as well? <laughs> it's for everyone, guys. The party is for everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Has everyone got a Hershey kiss? Here's what I'd love for you to do. Now notice, as you hold it in your hand, don't open it yet. As you hold it in your hand, you can... Even if you could imagine just closing your eyes, it just, if you close your eyes and you just kind of feel around this wrapping, the little string that comes out, the shape and the texture of this, right? As you hold it in your hand, it conjures up memories. Like every single one of us, we know exactly what this is. Like this is a small delight of heaven. <laughs> this is, I know exactly what this is. In fact, my impulse is just to pull this string and to rip it apart. So I'm going to invite us to savor this moment. In fact, with the wrapping still, I want you to just take a big sniff of this. Look, even through the foil. You can smell that, right? Isn't that amazing? God bless Hershey, Pennsylvania. Hey, just slowly, why don't you just slowly open up this delectable treat here. Yeah, just open it up. Don't hold on, don't put it in your mouth yet. Just just open it slowly. Now sniff again. Wow. It's far more potent without the wrapping. Here's what I'd love for you to do. I just want you to just bite off that end of it. Just bite it off. Just like notice the texture against your teeth. Let it melt in your mouth. Have that piece just roll around over your tongue. Taste it. Mm. Some of you already swallowed it. I know, I know. <laughs> Impatient New Yorkers. Hey, you don't have to go anywhere. Let's just, just savor that. Okay, now take the rest. Place it on your tongue. Just let it, let it marinate on your tongue. It's amazing how it just melts. Hmm. 
all the hands that went into preparing this piece of chocolate. Can you imagine the person who discovered chocolate and just realized that it was edible? Created it for mass consumption. I'd love for you just to repeat after me. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. A kiss from God. It's who Jesus is. He gives us these moments of delight and joy. He's not some killjoy. Instead, he's someone who brings the best wine. It's who Jesus is in this miracle. Now, that's not the only point of this miracle, though. You see, actually, in what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks, if you're to actually take a step back and look at the Gospel of John from a whole, there's actually all these different clues that will be evident in the miracles of Jesus that signify just how unique Jesus is. But there's these little clues and words that are used in this text that reveal something deeper going on. Uh, so I, I would love for us, check this out. Look at what it says. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, here's this first kind of clue. If you know anything about the Christian heritage or the Christian t- tradition, There's a sacrament that's given to the church, the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup. And it's always supposed to be a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, his death on our behalf, about his extraordinary love for us. So there's one clue there. The wine has gone, and Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And look what he says. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus is referring to his hour, When he's praying and he's saying, my hour has not yet come. He's actually talking about his death. The hour of his death. And even early on in Jesus' ministry, he knows where this story is going. He knows it's moving towards his death. And even in this passage, it's it's basically revealing that Jesus himself knows when he says, my hour has not yet come. He's hinting at his own death. Now check out what it says. Nearby stood six stone water jars. These are these massive jars where the water was held. The kind used by the Jews for what? For ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, ceremonial washing, it was this moment where Jews believed that they needed to be continually cleansed from their sins. And these jars were used for that. And it's almost like this hint is given. Now, here's what we believe in Christian theology. It's by his blood. It's when Jesus dies on the cross that he cleanses us from our sins. That it's through his blood and his shed blood that we are made whole and complete. And he takes away our sins. He takes on our punishment. This is what we believe is... As Christians. Now I realize for some people, like this sounds really outrageous 
And if you're not a Christian here, that sounds so strange, but this is what we believe. You see, all these clues are given about who God is. Jesus is the exact representation of the God that we believe in. And there's all these clues about Jesus and his coming death. And then finally, look what it says. What Jesus did here in Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. His glory and his disciples believed in him. In the Gospel of John, whenever the word glory is used, it's used in this very confounding way. And the reason why is because, again, people believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he's come. And they talk about his glory. But the reality is, throughout the Gospel of John, whenever it talks about his glory, most people would think, and the disciples even thought, oh, his glory is Jesus' power and strength. And by his power and strength, we will overthrow Rome. And we will overthrow any conquest, human, uh, like enemy that needs to be conquered. And yet, and yet, in the Gospel of John, whenever it says that Jesus is about to display his glory, it's actually a word that signifies that his glory is actually in his death. And so you'll see this throughout the Gospel of John, which is so confounding because no one expected that. No one expected that this is who Jesus is. No one expected that this is how God would deliver his people. That his greatest glory would actually be his greatest shame, his death on a cross. And yet all these words are used in this text to reveal that in the midst of Jesus bringing great joy and bringing the best wine to the party, in the midst of this moment, Jesus' mind and his heart is actually still reminded and focused on his own death. And here's what this reveals to us. It reveals what the heart of the Christian message about who God is. It reveals that the, what we believe as Christians is that we trade his sorrow for our joy. That this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to reveal to you and to me that in the midst of whatever you and I might be going through, the overwhelming feelings, the anxieties, the fears, the hang-ups, that God fundamentally is a God of incomparable love that he's a God who would actually trade his own sorrow for our joy. The way he brings the best wine is he's focused on his coming death. And this is what the Christian message has always been about, that this is what God is like. His disposition towards us is a disposition where he loves us, where he is for us. And even when we may not see it, even when we may be going through the darkest valley, God says, I want to trade my sorrow for your joy. I want you to know that this is who I am for you. That you can take this to the bank. That God is a God who is for you, whose love is for you and continually towards you. You know, one of the illustrations I regularly use when it comes to this idea of this great exchange where Jesus takes on our sin and shame and sorrow so that we can receive this new kind of life um, is a story of my, my twin brother and I. There was a moment in elementary school where he was, um, his grades started to slip a bit and he was really struggling in school, but we were always in class at the same time. And so, and we were always pretty even in everything. And so my mom was asking him, like, what's going on? And so my brother was like, Mom, I can't, I can't see the board. 
when the teacher is teaching, I can't see the board. And she's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you can't see the board? He's like, I just can't see very well. Everything's blurry. And you got to understand, like, my, my mom, she's growing agitated. And the reason why is because, like, she's got impeccable vision. Like, she looks at the wall, and she's like, that looks like E. coli 16 over there, you know, or something like yeah, She's just got, like, incredible vision. And so, so my mom is like, what? And, and my brother, he's like, he's like take, me to a, take me to an optometrist. You'll see. She's like, she's like, what? No, this can't be true. You're my son. There's no way. So they go to an eye appointment, and he starts to get tested, cover one eye, and he starts to, to rattle out whatever he's seeing or not seeing, and he's missing them consecutively, every single one. He's like, oh, E, and my mom is like, what? What, that's, that's, that's an F, you can't see that? She's going increasingly agitated. He's, meanwhile, he's like, I'm trying my best. He's doing, but he's growing vindicated inside. Finally, he finishes the test. He knows that he's missed it because everything's blurry to him. He's starting to feel vindicated by it. The optometrist comes in and says, basically, your, your son needs glasses. My, my brother was like, yeah, see, mom, I told you. I told you. It was my vision that I inherited. <laughs> he didn't say that. But, uh, but in this moment, Something happened. My mom, her disposition had changed from she was initially agitated and frustrated. To my brother noticed by the time that the optometrist had come and told her and my brother that he needed glasses, she was now tearing up and beginning to weep. My brother all of a sudden started feeling really guilty. He's like, listen, mom, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for, uh, I don't know what I'm sorry about, but listen, I'm sorry <laughs> if it's the cost of the glasses. I will sit in front of the class. I'll sit in front every single time. We don't have to spend money on the glasses. My mom, she, would, she gathers him, herself. She says to him, it's not the money. It's just, if I could trade my eyes for yours, I would do it in a heartbeat. Do it in a heartbeat. You know, the God that we serve is a God who actually did trade his life for yours and for me. His sorrow would become our joy. His death would become our resurrection. He trades his life for you and for me. This is who God is. And he invites us into this relationship where he says, can you trust a God like that? Come and believe in this God. A mighty God of love, whose heart is for you. It's always been for you. I'm going to invite us to stand and the worship team come forward.
what is God like? I mean, that's the question that so many people, whether Christians or not, have wrestled with. What is God like? Maybe even you, today you walk in to this room today, you've got all these views of God and what he's like, all these misgivings and doubts and wondering. Maybe you're overwhelmed with life. You wonder if God is present, whether he's real, whether he's for you. And today, is the one whose love is so true that he would trade his life for yours, that his sorrow would become your joy, so that today you might experience the party he has for you.